I think often in the past, we've thought much more about the work and not enough about the worker. The way we're working is changing. Teams are virtual, relationships are digital, and business has entered its next big evolution. How can we adapt to meet these changing demands? And why is it more important than ever to not just treat our teammates as professionals, but people too? Let's inject some empathy into this uncertainty. Welcome to Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to another episode of Subject Matter. This is episode 12 of season two. I'm your host, as always, Ben Bradbury. And for the next half an hour or so, whether you are chilling out after a long day of work, going for a walk around your local neighborhood, or just looking to learn, we are going to be guiding you through a new way of understanding yourself and your world just a little bit better. By the time the episode is done, my promise to you is that we will have helped sharpen the tools in your mental toolbox to improve the way that you make decisions. Our focus for this episode is looking at teams and the workplace. I'm sure that your work and your job has been affected by COVID-19. And today we're talking about how that work is going to be evolving in isolation. Today's learnings come from the perspective of a subject matter expert who's been on the front lines of building exceptional businesses. I had an absolute joy interviewing her, and I can't wait for you to learn from her too. It's time to introduce today's guest. For 30 years as a management consultant, Liz Kislick has helped her clients solve their thorniest problems while strengthening their top and bottom line. Her speciality is developing high-performing leaders and workforces for organizations from the Fortune 500 and US-based nonprofits to family-run businesses. Liz has coached and mentors employees from the C-suite to the contact center, motivating them with her wit, wisdom, and humanity. Liz is a TEDx speaker and her ideas have been published in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Entrepreneur. I started my conversation with Liz by asking her about one factor in particular that plays a huge role in our professional success. I think of myself as a lucky person. So I assume that if I was careful, because I don't expect luck to take care of everything, but that if I was careful and practical, I would continue to be lucky. Why do you think of yourself as a lucky person? I do believe that to some extent you make your own luck. But my grandfather was very, very fond of quoting a line from Joe DiMaggio, who was a famous baseball player here. And DiMaggio used to say, I'd rather be lucky than smart. And my grandfather's perspective was that you could be smart and you could work hard, but that if you were not also lucky, things might not go well for you. And that there is a certain amount of right time, right place. So some of it is that kind of belief set. But the other thing is that I'm a very privileged person in a world where there are many ways to be born. I am a white person. I was born to educated people. Those are things 
that set you off well in life, and then it's sort of yours to lose or yours to mess up. So I really have been very lucky, and I have tried to make the most of my opportunities. But in a world where loads of things can go wrong, many, many things have gone right for me. I think that's humbling that you can recognize the advantages that you have. But I do want to push back a little bit because to, I do believe to an extent we do create our own luck. And I'm, I'm very curious to understand some of the factors that you use to create yours. So if you were to reflect on what exactly it was that allowed you to capitalize on that luck when it was there, what would you say are some of the things that were in your control that you've done throughout your career that have allowed you to capitalize on the opportunities when they come up? I think in general, I look on the bright side. And I think some of that is accident of temperament or nature. But it means that when you see an opening, you can go for it, you know? I'm also a worrier. It's funny to think about that combination of being simultaneously optimistic and a worrier. So I'm optimistic that it will work out, but I worry a lot about what could go wrong. So in a sense, I'm always trying to pre-debug things and look for my options. I really believe in trying to have options and make sure you keep alternatives in front of you. So with that as a preamble, now I'm thinking back, what are the choices I made? Well, you know, one of the things is that I do not mind hard work. I'm fine with that and with working a lot. I like working. And the second thing is, and maybe here is a fork in the road. So when I was finishing up college, all of my friends were applying to grad school and I did not. I wanted to work. I wanted to be in an environment, not just to learn things. And I love learning still to this day, but I wanted to make things happen and see things happen. And I believed that it was more likely that that would be true by going to work. So I applied for a variety of jobs and ended up taking a job at a marketing agency where I had worked during my summers in college because I already had a kind of head start and a reputation there. And because I like hard work and I'm very curious I got involved in all kinds of things there that were not necessarily assigned to me. And so I got promoted every six months because I would just start doing something else, taking care of some other problem. And then the business would make it official. So I guess that was a way in which I made my own luck. I took advantage of what was going undone and therefore became more responsible and elevated myself. So the first thing we can learn is that it's useful to just acknowledge the role of luck and the fact that not everything is in our control in our careers. As Liz's grandfather said, quoting Joe DiMaggio, I'd rather be lucky than smart. And for more on luck and the role that it plays, you can check out episode 10 of season one, where we break down the constituent parts of whether luck is made or perceived. But let's assume for the sake of this segment that luck is made, that we can create our own luck. And there's two 
important ways that I want you to pay attention to that Liz uses to make her own luck that we can use as well. The first is to be optimistic and a warrior. So this is that rare combination of looking on the bright side and expecting things to work out, but also seeing what will go wrong as well. This reminds us of last episode where we looked at Elon Musk's perennial problem of setting and missing production deadlines that were too ambitious. Optimism can get us through life's little obstacles for sure, but we must be realistic as well with what can actually be achieved. In Liz's words, it helps to pre-debug things because life will have worries and anticipating these worries before they come up make them far easier to deal with when they actually do rear their ugly heads instead of just naively thinking optimistically, we're not going to face any problems because life just doesn't work like that. So that's the first one, be optimistic and a warrior. Second of all, is that we can actually attract some of these favorable decisions and have them gravitate towards us by taking on responsibility. Remember what Liz said, I took advantage of what was going undone. And that means that she was getting involved in what wasn't assigned to her. Granted, she didn't have to go and take on this responsibility. But as soon as Liz started taking on and working on more problems, eventually the business made it official that she should work on them for real. And that was what allowed her to get promoted. But it was only by taking the initiative and taking responsibility that that process began. And we can crystallize this by going a step further and sharing a key principle for you guys today, which is that help is a mechanism for creating opportunity. And specifically helping with very little or no intention of getting anything in return. It needs to be altruistic in that sense. So I'll share this with a story. Three years ago, I was just about to move to New York City. And I would go on to set up a side hustle where I was creating content for entrepreneurs and small business owners, a very primitive version of the business I run today. And the reason that I got started in my side hustle is because I reached out to other influencers on LinkedIn who had big followers who were very long on ideas, but short on time. And I said to them, would it be useful for you to have someone writing content in your tone of voice that you can share with your audience? And for the ones that got back to me, I just wrote them content for months and became their one-man content engine. And then eventually, after three or four months of just investing in this, of helping with no intention of getting anything in return, the mechanism started working. And someone reached out to me and said, I've got a project for you to work on. And that turned into my first paid project, working for myself. So it was helping that allowed me to open that door to opportunity. And likewise, you can do the same thing in your business. I'm sure that COVID-19 has opened up new opportunities that weren't there beforehand. So ask yourself, where can I volunteer? Where can I add value to the business that I haven't been asked to? You can stand out for all the right reasons by simply taking on that little bit more responsibility than you're used to. And doing that can be the difference between standing out for all the right reasons and sinking back into the shadows. Help creates a valuable currency that we can trade later to create opportunity. Liz helped with these responsibilities because she was curious. And that's an important detail, curiosity. 
Let's dig into exactly why. Your curiosity just enabled you to say, why don't we do this differently and kind of tinker almost with the problem? That curiosity was it was a superpower. It wasn't just something that kind of filled the time that you were doing, but actually created some very real leverage in your career. I mean, I now am I'm very curious. How have you, it sounds like curiosity is something that you've carried throughout your career. How else do you think that following your curiosity at times has led to opportunities that perhaps you couldn't have seen otherwise? I love what you said about tinkering because that's an urge to make better. And I have that very strongly. And when you are curious, you notice what isn't so great and could be better. Not everybody loves it when you do that, by the way. (laughs) Sometimes you're noticing what isn't great makes other people uncomfortable if you decide to say something about it or to push on it in some way. So I can't say it's universally loved. But what that has done is that once I started consulting, my practice evolved as I involved myself in higher order problems. And although I had started out in a kind of call center operations mode, because in a call center, dealing with customer service, customer support, sales staff, you learn what's going wrong for customers and you learn what's going wrong in the business because everything, what happens in accounting, what happens in product development, at some point it affects a customer. So you can see what's going wrong elsewhere in the organization. And whenever I could find a leadership that was willing to hear about it, they were then happy to discuss with me how we could make those things better. And so that expanded my practice into working in all kinds of areas in a business from the perspective of facilitating discussions that needed to be held that hadn't been held, helping to develop managers and leaders, helping to develop the strategy for the business itself, uh, becoming a, a trusted advisor to leaders who sometimes have no one to talk to. So all of these things, in a way, are an outcome of my wanting to know how and why things happen. So we can think of tinkering as an urge to make better. And curiosity lets us find the problems that are worth tinkering with. In Liz's case, she wasn't afraid to spark conversations with her managers on problems at all levels of the organization. Remember in the bio that I read out, she's worked with people from the C-suite to the contact center. There is no element of the workforce that is below her scrutiny. And it was this early principle that unlocked Liz's ability to trade up the chain and start working on higher order problems, where the things get really interesting. Tinkering is an advantage for you in the isolation era. It's just frankly too uncertain to plan ahead right now. And so the people that are winning are the people that can iterate quickly, the people who can tinker with their problems. So instead of trying to overplan with big projects, offer a small fix or try and test, experiment. The tinkering mindset is adaptive, it's iterative. 
And so specifically to make this tangible, when we are in conditions of uncertainty, like we are right now with COVID-19, a framework that we can use is to run month-long experiments. So what can I try for the next 30 days that I might just be interested in, or I think that might get a result in one shape or form, but it's not committal. We're not trying to overplan this in terms of quarters and years because the environment is just shifting far too quickly. So just ask yourself, what do I want to learn this month? What do I want to tinker with and run an experiment? Remember from last episode, a cause of team performance dropping was routine rigidity, getting locked in to past routines and being unable to innovate. And especially when our environments are stagnant, like in isolation, it pays to mix things up. So simplify your conditions to improve by testing experiments over projects and just take your learning one step at a time. Now, when I spoke to Liz, she introduced me to this great TEDx talk by the conductor Benjamin Zander. And our discussion on this TED talk actually ended up creating a window to how Liz thinks about nurturing relationships within our isolated environment. Let's jump back in. I'm so happy you watched that talk. Isn't it wonderful? It's so heartwarming. It's great. And it gives you hope for almost everyone and everything. So I think that connection can still be made all the time. I mean, just when you were talking about watching Ben Zander, I did exactly what you said. I lit up. I was so happy sitting here, Ben, hearing your voice talk about something that created a new bond between the two of us, a new kind of meaning for us. I was really happy. I don't think that happiness comes from subtracting expectations. It can come from adding to them. I mean, I didn't know that you would watch the talk just because we talked about it, but you went and did it. So first of all, okay, I'm, I'm going to sort of annotate this in an excessively detailed way. First of all, you went and did something we talked about in a short period of time when the whole world is crazy, okay? So that's very gratifying to me in that you took me seriously. That's a first piece. The idea that we take each other seriously and actually do something because of that, because of relationship, because of information that passes from one of us to another. So, that's one whole vector of positive, good stuff. Second thing, you liked what I liked. Think of what that does for people. When we care about what the other cares about, and sometimes you don't even have to like it, just the understanding that someone cares about something because you care about it, that builds relationship. So building relationships online has similarities with building relationships in person. And namely, a key characteristic of building those relationships and creating initial chemistry is creating value alignment. Liz said you don't even have to like the thing that we're talking about. You just have to care about it because I care too. And this factor, the fact that we care about someone else's values and what they have invested their time, energy, and attention and belief system into is a precious resource 
to build relationships. Sharing these ideas together creates new context that we can use to deepen our relationships conversations. So for example, if you recommend me a book and I go ahead and buy it and read it, suddenly we don't only have more to talk about, but our relationship can go one step deeper because it shows I value your opinion. And especially in such a crazy time where we can't physically see the relationships that we interact with, acting on such recommendations, showing that we care about their values, well, that becomes invaluable. To start, you don't have to live someone's values. You don't have to go the whole hog and say, well, if this is what someone else cares about, suddenly I have to care about it too. It is simply about appreciation, letting the other person know that you respect them and respect their choices. By appreciating their point of view, you can enhance the collective perspective that your relationship shares. Now, this principle of value alignment is incredibly important for company teams as well. And I was very curious to hear from Liz how she thinks the workplace is changing in our isolation era. I think often in the past, we've thought much more about the work and not enough about the worker. And I think that that is amazingly true at every level. So that even for a vice president, the president may have thought much more about the vice president's work. Of course, there are pleasantries. And of course, where there are good relationships, there is discussion of family and how you are and upcoming vacation and what you care about and all that kind of stuff. I I don't mean to minimize that completely. But the idea that how my colleague is, is something that is completely legitimate. It's worldwide. It's very powerful. They can't even change it themselves. The structure of work and organizations mean that when something is going wrong in someone's personal life, there's too much expectation that they should keep it out of the office. There's too much expectation that if they were only savvier about it, it would have minimal impact on their work, and that it is up to the individual to handle their personal stuff so that it doesn't affect the work. But now, every individual stuff is so much more related to every other individual stuff. It's more present. And I hope if people are thinking, and leaders all over the place, if they are really thinking about what's going on, they realize that what's happening in individual households cannot necessarily be changed or fully managed by the people in those households. This stuff is too big and it will not work all the time, can't be just forced into the background the way it used to be. And I think that is particularly true, if I may say, for women who have been expected to manage much of what goes on in households, particularly if there are children. And it also has been very much true for people of lower incomes, people of color, people who are doing work that everybody depends on, but doesn't necessarily look at in terms of the humans and their full lives that are there in the work. 
I think there's something really interesting about how the idea that you've brought up that every worker now is it's clear is part of a family. And like some workers will be working out their living rooms next to their kids. And when you're on a conference call and you're no longer at the office and suddenly you see a child running behind them or your husband drops in to give you a little bit of coffee, it's suddenly apparent that this isn't just an isolated worker who's a cog in your machine. They have their own ecosystem to care for, their own social unit. And I think it's going to, what we could potentially see from this is that the the way that we evaluate performance at companies and the way that we treat our fellow workers and empathize for the situations they're in, it's no longer just about the employee and what they want, but it's actually understanding, well, talk to me about your family. What do they think is okay? You know, we bring our whole selves with us wherever we go. And then most of us, in one way or another, either tamp ourselves down or try to pass in some ways. We don't necessarily share the uncomfortable things or the difficult things that we deal with when we leave work. That's true for almost everyone in some form or other. This is a new reckoning that we'll all have to deal with as individuals and that employers will have to take into account in a very serious way. So the thing that really stuck out to me while Liz was speaking from this is that remote working culture actually requires a new kind of empathy. As Liz says, we've thought about the work, but not about the worker. But this is in direct problem and conflict with the fact that we bring our whole selves to work. We've never been able to change how our colleagues feel, and we never will be able to. And typically, we used to deal with our problems and our own emotional turmoil by bottling those feelings up in the workplace. There's a line between the professional side of us and the personal side. But in isolation, we're seeing these two sides blur more than ever. It's harder to hide our real selves. Today, we're creating these webs of relatability where everyone has more touch points on how your life is actually going not just your career. The isolation era is humanizing our experience. Compassion becomes key. And we can learn from Bill Campbell from last episode, The Trillion Dollar Coach, who gets to know people as people first so he can motivate them as business people second. Especially when it comes to these infringed groups that Liz mentioned. Women, people of lower income, people on the front lines of battling COVID-19, we can finally start recognizing these people for the great work that they are actually doing. And we're moving from the importance of focusing on what we're doing to how we're actually feeling underneath it. Now, there's one change from all of this, which is that building relationships is not happening through a hug or a handshake. It's happening through how we communicate online. And I asked Liz how she thinks communication is going to evolve in the isolation era. With all this instantaneous communication, it's possible to drown. One of the things I hope we'll learn, but I don't know how to go about it yet, is how to work more efficiently for people in large organizations. Those email threads 
that have, you know, a dozen people on them and everybody replies all, or everybody's reading what's in this Slack channel, that Slack channel, whatever it happens to be, we don't all have to look at everything. And figuring out who needs which communications, I think, can go a long way to eliminating some of the noise in the day. How can we focus on the most critical priorities, winnowing things down? I think that will be so helpful going back to the question you asked me much earlier about humanizing work and for people to be able to shift in and out of now I am in my working mode and how do I signal to the people I'm housed with that right now I have to concentrate versus now I'm in open and engaging mode and being able to go back and forth in that during the day. I I think that will be very interesting to see. And I'm hoping we really learn something about that. So let's take the opportunity that remote work gives us to streamline our communication. We don't all need to hear everything, although that can be the tendency if you're working at a larger organization where saturating communication is pretty normal. You get these bloated reply all emails, as Liz says, with dozens of people on them. But today we all have the same working environment. We're getting information and inputs digitally and virtually. And so what does this mean? Well, first of all, it means that we need to give clear signals of when we're working versus when we're not working. If we're at the office, it's quite obvious what our intentions are and when we leave, vice versa. But if we're all working from our home offices, which could be our bedroom, it could be the lounge, those lines again are blurring. And so just because you're at a computer does not equal that you're available right now. And you need to make it clear to your team where that line is drawn. Secondly, it's important to know what doesn't need communicating as well. So as an exercise for you, next time you're questioning how valuable a message is that you're sharing, ask yourself, do I really think this needs sharing? Take that split second just to ponder the quality of the message you're sharing. If you really do believe that it's valuable, go ahead and send it. But often that split second of questioning your decision may just save you from sharing something completely, ultimately unnecessary. But let's get practical. What does Liz say on how we actually choose to communicate? I think it may help to go back to just audio. Um, And the reason for that, there are some studies that show that when we listen to each other, we actually have a better sense of emotional content because we're more able, we're more trained to manage our faces, but there's a kind of bleed through that happens. I'm sure you've had it many times. You pick up the phone and right away you say, is everything okay? Because you just hear from somebody's voice, there's a catch or something's off, right? So I think one of the ways of really being together is to get off the video where you don't know where to look anyway. Do you look at the camera? Do you look at the face? But to hear each other and the catch of breath, that quick inhale when you know somebody wants to talk, all the things that you hear in the voice alone 
gives you a way of being very present if you are really listening and not doing three things at once. So this gives us another way to streamline our communication, which is reverting back to audio, because video, Liz argues, might just give us too much to focus on. But let's understand the science behind this, because it doesn't just have to be audio. There's a principle here, and we can get it from a quick neurology lesson. So humans process sensory input in two ways. First is unimodally. This is where you have one sense at a time. The second is multimodally, having lots of senses, several senses integrated into one picture. Now, the brain is much less able to intently focus on information coming in if it is in multimodal processing mode. Think about this video, for example. You're watching me communicate and you're hearing me communicate versus listening to me on a podcast. It is just one sense that is being tuned in. So when we have unimodal communication, it actually zeroes our focus in. We pick up on the intricacies on people's voice, their intonation, their delivery that we might have missed out on originally. But the key here, whether we choose to communicate unimodally or multimodally, is presence. When we're communicating, limit distractions. Shut that laptop. Turn off your phone. Even if over video or walking, texting, talking, focus on the person and nothing else. Even though you might not actually be, give them your attention like you're in the room next to them. When we're present and focused, it doesn't merely unlock the opportunity to thrive by ourselves, but we can thrive together too by communicating effectively. So let's recap the big things that we learned from Liz today. The first is the two ways that Liz creates her own luck. Number one, by being optimistic and a warrior, looking on the bright side to get through life's little obstacles, but being realistic about what could go wrong. And secondly, gravitate favorable decisions towards you by taking on responsibility. When we help with no expectation of getting anything in return, it opens doors of opportunity that were previously out of reach. Second is the need for empathy in our remote working environment. We've thought about the work, but not traditionally about the worker. And it's vital to appreciate how our fellow workers are feeling, not only what they're doing. Take the time to ask your employees, how are you getting on in isolation? What's keeping you up at night? Humanizing someone, treating them as people first and then business people second, creates the relationships that we were really looking for all along. And third, isolation gives us an opportunity to streamline our communication. It's important to know what to communicate, but also what not to communicate as well, and give clear signals if something is of vital importance. As the lines between work and home blur more and more, when we communicate clearly, we're doing our bit to make the world that little bit less uncertain. Thanks for watching or listening to this episode of Subject Matter. You can subscribe over on Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods to stay up to date with this season. For more on Liz, you can connect with her on LinkedIn. Her name is Liz Kislik, that's K-I-S-L-I-K, 
or you can jump over to her website, lizkislick.com, for a free ebook on dealing with interpersonal conflicts at work. And that might potentially be useful for the people that you're staying with right now. Our big focus for this season of subject matter is making it as relevant and practically useful to you as possible. If there was something you liked or didn't like, I would love to hear your feedback. You can reach me directly on Twitter at Ben Bradbury underscore. So without further ado, thank you very much for tuning in and we'll see you next week for the next episode of Subject Matter.